Well, I've got to say, I have been waiting for this to start. I've been excited. Um, it, it, is, uh, it is so much fun to be back with you all here for our Thursday morning pastor's Bible study. And thank you once again for coming back. You know, it's always excited when people are excited at the beginning. It's also exciting for the teacher when they're equally excited at the end of it, and, and, uh, and meaning that you're ready to come back next time. And so thanks, thanks for coming again today. Um, for everybody who's just getting here and just coming in, there are materials over here on the table. You've got an outline or kind of a syllabus for the, the whole course over the next uh, few weeks till we get to, till we get to Easter. And then um, there are, there's an outline for today. There are questions for related to today's study. You weren't expected to have those done today, of course. But, um, but then, then there are questions for next week. Now, I do want to go ahead and stipulate again that the outline that I'm giving you today does not necessarily reflect the content of the class. I, I'm hoping it will. Uh, that's always my plan, but as you all know, my, conscious, my, uh, my lectures tend to go a little stream of consciousness, and I do remind you at this time that the outline is provided as a courtesy, not a contract, okay? So if I stray from it, please use it as a resource for future endeavors as you, as you see fit. It's an exciting thing to be here because today, we are going to continue our study of King David, but we're going to do it in a new way. We're going to do it with a new series of studies about the Psalms that, that David wrote, specifically those Psalms that deal with historical incidents in his life. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to do something a little, a little bit different, a little bit fun. Last night we had our, our opening session of this, uh, of this study with the with the Wednesday night version of this. Of course, the same lecture and everything like that, but we had a great turnout, had about 35 people, most of them new. We didn't have but maybe a couple folks who were unable to come this morning, but so it was mostly new people, so that was a lot of fun. But we started off with something fun, and I hope you'll enjoy this too. I want everybody, if you've got one close, or just, we may not have enough for everybody, but just please be willing to share. Everybody take, take your hymn book and just Flip through for a second and find your favorite hymn. And you don't have to define your favorite hymn according to anybody else's criteria. It's just your favorite. It's on the top of your playlist. It's, it's, you know doesn't have to be one of the greatest hits of the faith, but it can be just one that you, that you particularly like and that is meaningful to you. So everybody, just think about that. If you haven't got a hymn book handy, maybe you just, it just already comes to mind. And this is, we're going to have a little bit of, a little bit of participation this morning. Um, who's willing to tell me their favorite hymn, just right off the bat? Give me your favorite, yeah. Holy, holy, holy. holy. You know, it's funny, that was the first hymn named last night, too. <laughs> holy, holy, holy. Yes, great, great, yeah. How great thou art. How great thou art. Yes, Sandy. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Yes, George. Just as I am. Okay, we can always tell a former Baptist in the crowd. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yes. He leadeth, he leadeth me. Yeah, okay. Any other? Yeah, and? Be thou my vision. Be thou my vision. Yeah. A mighty fortress of our God. Yeah. Amazing grace. Yeah. Joy to the world. I know. I know. How many? Yes. Blessed assurance. I mean, I mean, how many have already had your favorite hymn named? Yeah, that's awesome. Any others you want to bring up? You know, I've, yeah, yeah. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. You know, one of the, yeah, Ron. Be still my soul. Be still my soul. Yes, ma'am. 
A mighty fortress is our God. Absolutely. Yeah. The church is one foundation. Okay, we could do this all day long. Okay, but if you if you have that, find you know find it in your find it in your handbook if it's there. If it's not, um, you know we'll we'll come back to that. You know maybe you've got a favorite worship song. You know maybe you are more on the contemporary end of things. Doesn't matter. You know just think about those songs for a few minutes. You know one of my favorite hymns. You know it's kind of like, you know it's kind of like talking with George and Sandy about, you know, what, what hymns or what, what verses, you know, or, you know, with Sandy, what verses you'd like read in, in George's service? I don't know, you know, what's your favorite? I mean, with these guys, there is no favorite. It's like, well, that's my favorite one except for all the others. <laughs> um, and, and as we go into this, you know, that, that's, you know, we all have multiple favorite hymns. I mean, you've always, maybe you've got your one, but you've got your, but you've got those that list of favorites. I think one of my favorites is always going to be because I love bluegrass music and I've heard so many great bluegrass and folk versions of this is, uh, is Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. I've heard Jay playing it. Um, one of the reasons I love that is one of my favorite hymns is uh, how many of you all are, friend, or are fans of the old Andy Griffith show? <laughs> Whenever there is a scene in church or they're singing hymns, they are always singing, singing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. <laughs> I think, I think it was actually Andy Griffith's favorite hymn, and that's why that one became sort of the standard. Whenever there's a scene in church, they're always singing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms with probably a, a couple of rare exceptions. Um, but every, every one of those hymns has a story that speaks to us. In other words, we have a story for why we, why we love that. Maybe it's a theological reason, like holy, 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 just lifts us up in the majesty of God, or maybe it relates to a specific event in our lives whatever it may be, but they all have a story behind them, too. For example, um, you know, I, I remember the first time that hymnody ever meant anything to me. And you're going to think, why is this guy our pastor? Um, <laughs> the first time that I ever really cared about a hymn was when I was actually standing. In, I was about 11 years old, 12 years old. And I was standing in a soccer goal playing goalie for the first time. And we were playing against a really good team. And our last, our, our real goalie got hurt because he took a ball right in the face. Okay? And so the coach said he'd seen me practicing that I hadn't maybe had some ability to do it. Or at least I was just like the fattest little kid on the, and I could block the most of the goal. And he said, he said, well, Bob, he said, Robert, go ahead and get in the goal. And so, so we're, we're playing soccer and, and here comes the, you know, here comes the opposing team driving down, and I know they're going to be taking a shot at me. Their biggest, most powerful kicker is coming on me. And what started coming out of my mouth? A mighty fortress is our God. <laughs> I was 12 years old. But the way it came out was, a mighty fortress is our God. A mighty fortress. And those were all the words I knew. I mean, I, I, a bulwark never failing. No, but but what it was is all of a sudden it was it was like I was I was starting to sing because it's like I needed that fortress around me, kind of like Luther did um, back in the Reformation. Or, or the other day, um, most of you all go to the traditional service, but you you may not have heard that that one of the things that Mitchell Moore, our associate pastor, did over over the. Uh, Christmas and New Year's holidays is, is he and a couple other guys in the church went skydiving. Somebody had basically given him uh, a skydiving trip as a kind of a dare. And so you ask Mitchell about it and he'll say, and you say, well, Mitchell, how would you, why would you jump out of an airplane? He says, I didn't. He says, I was pushed. He said, my, he says, my entire body, and he was one of those tandem jumps where he was fastened in five places to a real skydiving instructor. And, and he, 
He said, you know, he says, my body went absolutely limp except for my mouth, and I started singing, great is thy faithfulness, because I thought I could sing louder than my fear and sing louder than the airplane engine. But, you know, we all have a story about why that hymn that you chose as your favorite is your favorite. Did that make the goal? Huh? Did that guy make the goal? No, I actually stopped him. It was awesome. The Lord was with me. Um, but, but in any, I, I, but I, I, it is kind of funny though. He hit me so hard. I did deflect it, but then I, I dove and I kind of rolled and I got my feet tangled in the net. And I was like a, I was like a dolphin in a tuna net. And, and, uh, this is so off topic. Um, but the, but luckily my defenders were able to get it out and clear it and stuff like that. Anyway, back, this is not about soccer. Um, but so many of these hymns not only have stories that make them special to us, they also have stories that really, when we know the background of them, make them that much more meaningful. For example, how many of you all know the story behind Amazing Grace? You know, what, what, who was the author, who was the composer and, and writer of Amazing Grace? John Newton Wright. What was his job before he became a clergyman? He was a slave trader. You know, the, you know when he's talking about, you know, you know, I was saved, you know, I once, you know, I once was lost, amazing grace saved a wretch like me. He's not talking about somebody who was just, you know, unkind to his dog or his neighbors or talked back to his mother. This is a man who, who carried people across the ocean in bondage, who changed their lives, wrecked their, their families, tore families apart. He was, I mean, literally, I mean, one of those people that we would equate with the SS from World War II or something like that. And, you know, and then he, he, you know, God woke him up one day and he realized the evil of what he'd been doing. And, and out of his heart came this hymn. It's like, if God can save someone as despicable as me, he can save anybody. Or think about, um, uh, think about the, the beautiful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. You know, what's the story of that? Lost his whole family. Yeah, he lost his whole family in the Chicago fire. And he's, and, and he's writing that, he, you know, in spite of all that, in spite of my brokenness, in spite of the pain, you know, it is well with my soul. Oh, Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight. But for now, it is well with my soul. I mean, when we know the stories behind these hymns, we understand the depth of them and they connect with us on a deeper level. You know, and so as we approach hymns, I want you to, you know, next time you sing a hymn in church or as you're looking at these hymn books, you know, look at the, look at the, in the, the sort of marginal information. Look at who wrote it. Look at the time. You know, there are, you know, there are lots of resources out there that tell us the story behind these hymns because a lot of these were not, most of these were not written just because the church needed something to do for the opening part of its worship service. You know, they were written because they're telling a story, but they're telling it in a, a different way. They're telling it through music. They're telling it through, uh, through poetry. Now, you know, consider also the music. There's some hymns, To God Be the Glory, that, you know, that are really just put us in a, in a wonderful, almost pep rally type of mood. There are others, like, you know, I Come to the Garden Alone, that, that really put us in a much more contemplative place. You know, when the music accompanies, the music communicates, you know, not just the message, but, but in a sense, how we're supposed to feel about that message. Now, it doesn't mean that at a funeral you can't sing a triumphant song of God's grace, but it's always a little bit different. You know, one of my favorite philosophers, 
is comedian Steve Martin. And you will hear me talk about him a, a lot. But one of the things, he's also a very accomplished banjo player. And one of the things he says is that you can't play a sad song on a banjo. Um, I think that's not true, actually. It's probably the one thing I disagree with him on. He, the truth is, if you've ever listened to, you know, listened to bluegrass and you've heard like minor key bluegrass, just the one change in that one note can change the entire mood of that instrument. But you know, sometimes just that one minor note, that one minor chord can change the entire feel of a song. And, and the music becomes a way not to, not to trick us, not to manipulate us, but to sort of flank our minds to get straight to our hearts. And that's why music is such a powerful gift. And when it's used in the Lord's service, it is a powerful, wonderful gift and blessing. When it's used in, you know, in ugly, perverted ways, we also see how music can become a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, you think you know, there's a lot of dangerous music out there, whether it's you know, coming out of the popular streams and it's all talking about sex and abuse of women and things like that, that you know, like a lot of popular music does, or whether it's anthemic type things that came out of the Nazi party or Communist Party in the 40s, 50s, 30s, and, and all of the 20th century. It can be used for powerful purposes, both good and evil. And, and yet there's something about music, there's something about poetry, there's something about this type of literature that grabs us and, and makes us or, or takes us to a deeper level than perhaps other types of expression do. And, and that's why we're going to be studying the life of David, not only as history through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles, but also through the Psalms. Because we all know that life is not just history. We all know that life is more than simply those, those moments and events and dates and things like that. It's also the feelings and the truth that are communicated with them. And so today, you know, as we begin, I want to I, I remind us that, that the Psalms are a very personal expression of faith. And the Psalms of David are a personal expression of faith by King David. Now, one of the things I wanted to do today is I thought, well, what a perfect way to open a session on the Psalms. Uh, what better way to open it than by sharing one of the Psalms of David? You know, and, and then I thought, well, you know, that was, that was several months ago that I planned that, several weeks ago that I planned that. And then this week when I was transcribing some of George's prayers, I thought, no, I'm going to take us one more illustration deeper and, and, pray, and, and open us with a prayer that, that George prayed because it captures a lot of what a psalm is. It's both a personal expression of a relationship with God and something that we share together as a corporate form of expression of God. So if you would, let's just take a moment and let's, let's open our time together, even though we're 20 minutes into this, with a prayer by George Sturch. Merciful God, Mighty Father, we come to your sanctuary in humility and reverence to offer our worship. We're in awe before you and your creation power beyond our thought and comprehension. Distances that we cannot measure, questions that we cannot answer, problems that we cannot solve. We're humbled before you because of this life. You've given it so graciously and we are wondrously created. Each one so unique, each one so valuable. Each one holding so much possibility and hope. Each one loved by you so much that you gave your son, Jesus, for their salvation. We are here to, to worship you as the creator, creator of this universe and all that's in it. But so much of its mystery, so much we don't understand. 
O God, graciously lead us into the light of your insight and illumination so that we might come to know more of your creative purposes, more of ourselves, more of your love and grace. To that end, make us to become more sensitive to the gift of life, more responsive to your endless providential care, and more ready to celebrate your presence in all of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we have all chosen today a favorite hymn, it's also possible, or at least I hope by the end of this series, that you will also be able to choose a favorite psalm. Let's understand what the psalms are. I'm going to put it to you that the psalms are not like the other types of literature in the Bible. The psalms, I believe, really perform two functions. The first was a very personal function, and as we're talking about the psalms of David, what we're actually looking at is not just something that was written as a formal prayer or order of worship or element to that liturgy, but rather what we're looking at is we're looking at pieces as as, uh, as, uh, as um, offerings from David's own prayer journal, his own private thoughts. How many of you all keep a prayer journal? How many of you ever at any time have caught, kept a diary or any kind of journal like that? You know, what is that? That's, you know, that's a place where you kind of keep a record of things that have happened, the way you felt about things. It's not necessarily for, for public review or anything like that, but but it is, you know, it's, it's to capture more than just the information. It's to sort of express your feelings in a moment. Um, you know, my, I have kept different prayer journals at different times, but, my, but honestly right now my prayer journal is, is the, margins of my, the margin of my Bible. You know, I, I write in a lot of the white space of my Bible. And so if you've ever seen one of my, my Bibles, it's, you see that I'm actually pretty, pretty mean to it. There's it, got a lot of marking in it. But, you know, whether you use a different notebook or whether you have some type of, you know, some kind of system for your own Bible, you know, it's important that, that we interact with the Word of God. And what we have in Psalms is, is an accounting of David's most personal interactions with the Word of God as, as it came to him in visions and expression and life. Um, so as we read the Psalms, I'm going to ask you to to do something that I think any writer would ask for, and that is to follow the literature golden rule. Now, what is the literature golden rule? Do unto authors as you would have them do unto you. Uh, in other words, don't read the Psalms just as a critic. There's so many biblical scholars who read the Bible, read the Psalms just as a literary critic or read it as a historical critic. Read it as an offering of somebody's personal faith. You know, for this season, read it as Read them as expressions, as, as accounts, not just of history, but of what's going on in David's heart. You know, these are personal things. We don't want to read the Psalms like voyeurs or critics. We want to read them as people who are trying ourselves to engage with God. Because the Psalms are a journal. But they're not just a journal. My journal is just a journal. It's just a human journal. But David's Psalms are an inspired journal. These are not just thoughts that, that he had. These were thoughts that God stirred in him, awakened in him, crafted in him for our benefit later. And so, yes, it is a private journal, but it's more than that. It's a personal journal, but it's not exclusive. It's not, I shouldn't say it's a private journal. It's a personal journal, but it's not simply private. These words, these expressions were given so that we 
would have insights into what, what it means to have this kind of relationship with God. And why is that important? Why is that important coming from a guy like David? Well, what did we learn last semester? We learned that David is what? He is flawed. He is faithful. And he is favored. And we see that the Psalms ultimately reflect all of those things. So let's take a look first at, at a psalm and consider it as a personal journal entry of David. Turn, if you will, to Psalm number 63. One of my favorites. Let me read this with you, or to you. Here's Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your glory and your power. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Listen to that language. You know, just in terms of the type of language that he chooses. This is deeply emotional, personal language. And so the first thing we need to understand is that the Psalms of David express his heart. What, what expressions, what, what emotions do you hear coming out? Just name them, just shout them out. What do you hear? What is he expressing about God here, his relationship with God? A deep longing, yeah. Awe. Oh, absolutely. Thankfulness. Familiarity, yeah. Love, absolutely. You know, is this is this more like an informational letter or a love letter? I mean, you know. I mean, I, I don't know about you, I don't, most of y'all are ladies, you guys maybe, you know, every now and then a guy, you know, when we are really in love with somebody, we might occasionally sit down with pen to paper, or I'm not sure how the kids do it these days, maybe in a text, and, and I remember when I, you know, when I fell in love with Morgan, I wrote some things of which I am terribly embarrassed, if any of you all would read them. I mean, oh gosh, sappy, like Robert Browning would have gotten a diabetic shock from what I wrote, I mean. <laughs> And yet, that's what happens in, the, in a journal. And when, you know, and, and, in, and when we write those most personal things and we turn them to God, we, you know, we're saying things that maybe we wouldn't say from a platform or maybe we wouldn't say in a business-type letter, but they're coming out in a powerful way and it reveals our hearts. It reveals those deepest longings of our soul because what David is saying here is not only do I love you, God, but I need you. Because one of the things that, one of the, um, one of the emotions that nobody named here is fear. 
There's also fear in this psalm. Look at, um, look at verse, uh, verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. You know, when David says people are trying to destroy my life, he's not talking about somebody unfriending him on Facebook. He's not talking about, like, well, well, she was mean to me after class today, or he was kind of a bully to me today. No, he's talking about people who are literally trying to kill him and bring him down. This is a man who was in exile because his father-in-law wanted to kill him. This is a man who fought against foreign enemies and domestic enemies, who went into a civil war with his son. And so we see that, you know, this is not only a love letter, it's also a desperation letter. Somebody said that. But we only really know that because we know now, having studied him for a semester, of the context of his life. You know, we've, we know about those incidents. Look up at the top in the heading. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. When was that? When he was running from Saul. When his life was in danger, when he was living in caves, when he was being hunted like an outlaw, when there was a price on his head. You know, knowing that background story brings a lot to this. And so what we learn from the Psalms is not just his heart, but we also learn a little bit about his history. You know, when he was sitting in those caves by himself, when he was hanging out with his merry men, his mighty men, and he was you know, around the campfire, he wasn't just saying, oh, it's no big deal, it's all going to blow over. He was scared. I mean, this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, you know, Lord, saying, God, my Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. I'm not looking forward to this. And what we see here is history and heart brought together because history doesn't happen in a vacuum. We read history like facts. We read history like events. But we all know that's not how it is. My daughter was born on July 28, 2000. Is that just a cold fact to me, do you think? Oh, that is, a, that is an expression of joy. And there's so much emotion wrapped up into that. And you don't know me if you don't understand that. So we really want to understand David and his times and his history. We have to understand his heart. And if we want to understand his heart, we also have to understand his history. And so that's, what, that's why we study the Psalms. And so the Psalms are, you know, they're not, just, they're not just writings. They are also expressions of David's heart. Now, as we, as we look at the Psalms of David, um, we need to understand that they are not only his expressions, they are also the hymn book of Israel. Because these were not just private expressions, they were personal expressions that became public expressions. These are tools that the Hebrew people used in their own worship of their heavenly Father. Some people have referred to Psalms as the Hebrew hymn book. And so it is both a personal journal and a public resource. So it does two things as the hymn book of Israel. Number one, it says, this is how we feel about God. This is how, you know, these authors wrote the Psalms, but this is how we as a people feel about the Psalms. You know, you've, all of us have, uh, well, not all of us maybe, but, but most couples have what they call their song, right? And in very few cases, but in a few, there are sometimes where one of, the, one of the members of the couple is a musician and perhaps wrote the song, but nine times out of ten, when you pick our song, it's a song somebody else wrote, right? So whatever your song is, 
You know, that's probably a song somebody else wrote, but you have adopted it as your song, right? It's kind of like the hymns. The hymns are kind of our songs, our love songs as the church, even though somebody else wrote them. I love, you know, like all, you know, all, the, all the greatest hits of the Wesleys, for example. Um, or, I lo- you know, or Isaac Watts, you know, they're on my, they're on my playlist. Um, but, you know, but they're not ones that I wrote, and yet they express, they say better than I what, I what I love about God, what I feel about God. And so the Hebrews took these Psalms of David and, and the others, and we'll talk about the other authors in a second, and they became the expressions of the people's faith, but not just, or, or love for God, but not just the people's faith, but also their creed. Because the hymns also tell us important things about what we believe. The Psalms are full of theology, not expressed the same way, say, for example, as other places in the Bible. But the Psalms are full of theology. As a matter of fact, it's funny, I had a, um, I had a professor in seminary who grew up Baptist and became Presbyterian. And he said, he said, don't ever let the Baptists fool you into thinking that they don't have creeds. You know, because that was one thing that you always heard from, from the Baptist students at the uh, Baptist seminary and other places. They would say, well, you know, we're just a people of the Bible. We don't have creeds like you do. Like, it's, like there's something bad about the Westminster Confession and the Apostles' Creed and all these sorts of things. They said, we don't have creeds. We just use the Bible. My professor said, that's not true. They've got a whole book of creeds. They just call it the hymn book. Because... Not just for them, but you know, for all of us. Amazing Grace is not just a song we sing. It's theology. You know, the, you know how great is our God. You know, you know, God of grace and God of glory. A mighty fortress is our God. These are songs of theology. They're also songs of anthropology. They tell us something about ourselves. It is well with my soul. I come to the garden alone, just as I am. They tell us stories about history. They tell us things about prophecy. You know, holy, holy, holy. You know, that's, that's not just a song about who God is. It's a song that we're going to be singing for eternity. So I hope you like it. <laughs> I hope everybody loves holy, 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 because according to Scripture, we're going to be singing it a lot. Okay? But, you know, but these hymns tell us more than just, they're, they're more, than just, more than just songs we use to fill time in our worship experience or to entertain each other. They also express what we feel about God and what we believe about God. They are both emotional and creedal. And so the Psalms became that for the Hebrew people. Not just, just poetry or music for worship. They became statements of faith. But not just faith, not faith as facts, not just faith as facts, but faith as feeling. And so we have this beautiful resource. Now, let's take a quick run through, and I'm going to start moving fast through some things here, but if you look on your outline, I've got a section on the history of the Psalms. Just a few facts to go with this. Um, first of all, the, the word psalm, the word psalmist, uh, comes from the Greek, is, a, is taken off of the Hebrew word zmir, which means to pluck, or, you know, to think about a, a harp plucking a string. Um, what that means is that the psalms were originally intended to have musical accompaniment. They were not just poems to be read, but they were songs to be sung. As a matter of fact, the word lyre is a type of harp. Um, the word lyric comes from the word lyre, which means that these are words intended to be sung. Um, you know, for generations, the psalms have been the basis of hymns. As a matter of fact, 
in, in the Reformed tradition for a long time, hymns were verboten, and you really were only supposed to sing the Psalms. You know, we, you know, we've kind of gotten over that, but, um, but there is, you know, but these are songs that are meant to be, that are meant to be played on the harp, and if we believe the New Testament, they're also to be played and accompanied by the heart. And it's, you don't always have, a, you know, a musical instrument with you. But that doesn't mean that you don't have your own voice. That doesn't mean that you don't have your own heart accompanying the, uh, those things. In, in Ephesians 5.19, it says, In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. And so the point is, these are, these are a different type of literature. Um, the oldest of the psalms was written by Moses. Uh, Moses actually has three psalms that we have recorded. Only one, though, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 90, is a meditation reflection on prayer and time. Um, Exodus 15, 1 through 15, is a psalm of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 33, psalms of Moses. They just aren't located in the book of Psalms. By the way, I haven't even taught you all the best thing about the psalms. Um, and this was an old Sunday school trick. How do you find the book of Psalms in the Bible? That's right, it's right in the middle. Uh, 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 that's usually right unless you've got a really insane, serious study Bible that like pushes it forward or backward, but generally it's going to be right in the middle of your Bible. So Moses is the oldest of the psalm writers. Um, after Moses, um, the height of the psalm writing really came in the time of David, but we also see that Solomon wrote psalms as well as other uh, authors. We have other authors of psalms such as Asaph, the sons of Korah, Solomon, Haman, Ethan, and probably one of the most prolific of writers of the Psalms beyond David, Anonymous, um, who is still writing things today. Um, but, but, you know, they, we, so we have a, so the Psalms are not all from David, and that's why I've selected the Psalms that we're going to be studying in this class. So these are all Psalms that are directly attributed to David. You'll also see that the Psalms are arranged in books, kind of by, kind of by sections and, and common type. Um, they're really what are called five books within the book of Psalms. Um, but as the hymn, Hebrew hymn book, there are lots of different types of psalms. You have hymns of praise, um, you know, those, those hymns that just exalt who God is. You've got hymns of lament, whose primary function is to lay a troubled situation before the Lord or lay our brokenness before the Lord. You've got psalms of thanksgiving, which thank God for His answer to prayers. You've got psalms celebrating God's law, particularly, for example, Psalm 119, which is actually a collection of psalms in itself. But it's a really cool psalm. If you, don't know, if you, if you study that psalm, it's actually what's called an acrostic. Does anybody know what an acrostic is? That's like when, what they did, what the writers of Psalm, of Psalm 19 did is they took the Hebrew alphabet and every section and it, it, it begins with the, the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, the, you know, Psalm 1, or Psalm 119.1 begins with A, Aleph. Then you jump down about 12 verses and it starts with Bet, the B. But every line in that stanza starts with Aleph or Bet. I mean, so it's like, it is, it is this incredibly complex acrostic that traces the Hebrew alphabet. I mean, it's genius when you look at it. Only God could have inspired that. But it's all celebrating God's law. It's a beautiful psalm. Um, wisdom psalms, which, te which take themes from the wisdom books. Psalms of confidence, which enable worshipers to deepen their, their trust in God. Royal psalms, or messianic psalms, talking about David and talking about his heirs and, and the future and covenant that God has promised. Songs of ascent, 
Um, these are songs that, uh, that are sung, or that were designed to be sung as the people marched up to the temple in Jerusalem. You know, that's why you're ascending. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, you could be coming from Mount, Ezra, uh, Mount Everest. If you're going to Jerusalem, you're still ascending as far as is in, in, in our worldview, their worldview. Um, historical Psalms, um, you know, there are some Psalms that, that sort of recount the history of the Hebrew people. And then there are prophetic hymns, like Psalm 81, which echo themes found in the prophets, sort of pick up some of the same themes. And, you know, in which you could, it's like, did the prophet get it from the Psalms? Did the Psalm get it from prophet, the prophets? Doesn't matter, they both got it from God. You know, thus says the Lord. And so those are prophetic hymns. You'll see other words in there, like Selah, which is a word we aren't exactly sure what it means, but we think it means something like pause. And not just pause, like, like a pause in music, but, but kind of take a second. Think about it. Take a beat. Just think about it for a second. Um, there are others, uh, other things like that. But, but the thing we need to understand about the Psalms is that when we read the Psalms, we're reading something different in the Bible. Not exclusively found in the Psalms, but, but dominated uh, but, but uh, dominating in the Psalms, and that is that we are reading poetry. The Psalms are, are the pinnacle of Hebrew poetry. Now, I know that somebody in here right now is thinking, wait a minute, Bob. I have read the entire book of Psalms, and none of that stuff rhymes. How can it possibly be poetry? I know that's not true, because I know y'all are all more educated than that. Not all poetry rhymes. But people who hear that the Psalms are Hebrew poetry are going to be disappointed if they're looking for limericks or sonnets or anything like that. Because that's not the way Hebrew poetry functions. Even in Hebrew, they don't necessarily rhyme when, the way we think of rhyming. The Psalms, however, are a different type of literature. They're poetry. In the Psalms, you have an, an anthology of individual poems. Some of them are grouped together. But, um, but most of them stand on their own. And the point is that the Psalms, uh, as poetry, unlike prose, are more about expression than information. That's not to say there's not information in there, that there's not solid theology in there, but they're more about expression. For example, uh, the Star-Spangled Banner tells the story of, you know, it tells the story of the Battle of Baltimore from, uh, 18, from uh, the War of 1815, uh, 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 um, yeah, um, 1812, thank you. I was thinking Waterloo. Um, it's not the same thing. Um, but it doesn't tell it as, you know, as a fifth grade book report. It tells it as a song because it wants to create in us a feeling. Um, the Psalms, in the same way, give us information, but they also do that in a way that, that penetrates our heart at a deeper level. The Hebrew scholar Samuel Sandemel says this, Poetry rises above prose and verse by its heightened expression through capturing some intensely emotional mood or feeling, often expressed through felicitous words or phrases, such as figures of speech. The point is that we do not read Psalms the same way that we read other parts of the Bible. Um, one of the gross misunderstandings of biblical interpretation is that we should read the Bible literally. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. When you hear that you should read the Bible literally, do you mean that literally? And the reason I say that is because that was an idea that was really introduced by Martin Luther during the time of the Reformation because 
and during the medieval church, so much of the Bible was just interpreted almost wildly, analogously, abstractly, as though there was no real history behind anything that happened. That that whenever you read the word, whenever whenever you read the word sheep, it meant person. Well, sometimes it just means sheep. Okay. Um, now it teaches us things about relationships and stuff like that. But but to read the Bible literally, what what Luther meant when he said that we, as the people of God, must lead, read the Bible literally, is that we need to read it according to the proper type of literature that it is. Meaning that when we read history, we're reading history, and we understand that's prose, and that means literal in the sense that we mean it. But when, as in, you know, in, uh, in Psalm 63, when David says that you will protect me under your mighty wing, that doesn't mean that God's a bird. Okay, we don't read it literally like that, like God actually has like bird-like wings. Now, He's represented in literature and things like that as having such. But, you know, the idea is there's figurative language, and we read poetry and figurative language as poetry and figurative language. We read literal language in the Bible as literal. But when Luther said you, we need to read the Bible literally, he meant lead it, read it according to the type of literature it is. Now, where this gets a little sticky is in places like Revelation or in places like Genesis chapter 1. You know, where does, the, where, where does the, the poetry start and the literal history begin? And those are great debates that we would, I would love to have, but not right now. Okay? Um, but the point, Luther's point again was you've got to read the Bible as the authors wrote it. Do unto authors as you would have them do unto you. Now don't, don't read a love letter as a contract. <laughs> Don't read my syllabus as a contract. Um, take it for what it is, figurative language. Um, but anyway, that, so, so that's what it means. But as we read the Psalms, we've got to remember these are poetry. And to understand the poetry of them, we need to understand some very basic concepts about biblical poetry and about Hebrew poetry. And the most important of that is that if we associate English poetry with rhyme, then we need to associate, with, we need to associate Hebrew poetry with parallelism. And, and what that means is that parallelism is a type of rhyme, but it's a rhyming of thoughts rather than sounds or words. The idea in Hebrew is that we are going to use expressions of the same thing to reinforce an idea. <laughs> so how many of you have ever been explaining something to someone and said, in other words, ever done that? You've heard me do that at like 50 times today. Well, that is parallelism. In other words, it's saying the same thing in a different way to help people understand it better. In other words, it's like telling a story to express an idea. In other words, I mean, we, we do it all the time, but we just don't think about that. What's happening in Psalms is you've got a parallelism, a thought rhyme taking place, where in one line of a couplet, a thought is expressed, and then in other words... It's expressed in a different way for some other purpose. Now, there's a little bit more complexity to it than that because there are different types of parallelism. There's what we call synonymous parallelism. You know, and that's when you, know, you ask yourself if a couplet, and, and think about this, it's two thoughts that go together, not two verses. Okay, Remember, verses, the designation of verses, is a, th that is a relatively modern invention. The, the, the original scripts did not have verse numbers. 
Um, so, so you take two ideas, and, and they are couplets of ideas, and you ask yourself, first, is it synonymous? Are they saying the same thing? It's just, is it just repeating the same thought? You know, in other words, you know, for, ex you know, for example here, um, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. Again, same sort of same, same idea, just expressing it different ways. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the speed of the runner. So there's synonymous parallelism. There's also antithetic parallelism. Do they counter or oppose one another? You know, this but that. You amplify it by that way. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The idea is, is, is anchored in the same place, but we're, we're sort of reinforcing it in a different way. You know, it's cake is good, but... I can't even come up with something on that. Uh, <laughs> the idea, though, is it amplifies by a contrast. You're contrasting it. Um, another type of parallelism. Um, synthetic. This is where you take two, two thoughts and you're kind of merging them for the sake of amplification to make it louder or brighter. I will thank you forever because of what you have done. In the presence of the faithful, I will proclaim your name, for it is good. Proclaiming your name, thanking you. It's, what you do is you, you start taking pieces of the different ideas and you start linking them. You know, what, you know thanks, proclamation. Um, you, know, what, you, know, what is, you know, how do these things go together? Um, and this, this is one that brings together two different ideas. There's not going to be a test on this. Don't worry about it. This is just an introduction. Um, emblematic. One line is symbolic or a figure of speech. The second states the idea literally. Uh, from Proverbs, this is a good example of this one. Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for his vessel. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Again, it sort of builds on one another. Um, you may think, well, gosh, a lot of these sound very similar. Well, remember, scholars make up these categories, and we always have the, the, the sort of the license to kind of fold back on ourselves. Um, step, staircase, or climatic parallelism. You've got some examples there. I'm going to go ahead and move through these. Um, but, you know, there, the, the point is that in Hebrew literature, um, Hebrew just works differently from English. Hebrew does not have the same facility with adverbs and adjectives, other types of modifiers that English does. For example, in, in, um, in English, if I wanted to compare one person's speed to another, I would say that Dan is fast, but Chuck is faster, and Sandy's the fastest, okay? So fast, faster, fastest. In, in Hebrew, you would not say, fast, faster, fastest. I would say that Dan's fast, but Chuck is fast, fast, okay? Sandy is fast, fast, fast. So you raise it to the third degree, that's what we would call fastest. So for example, in Isaiah, in Revelation, God is not just holy, and he's not just holier than all of us. He is the holiest, so he is holy, holy, holy. You see how that works? Um, it's, 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 real, it's really fine. So, if something is really true, we say what? Amen. Right? If something's really true, we say amen, amen. Or, as we see it in Scripture, or as we see it in English translations of the Bible, truly, truly, I say unto you. Verily, verily, if you are into the King James. You know, these are, you know, again, that's an amplification. It's, it's not like, we would say, I'm really serious. 
They would say, I'm serious, serious. You'll notice the only time that holiness is ever attributed to the third degree of, any, of anyone anywhere, it's attributed to the third degree of God. He, you know, he is, and it's interesting, that of all his attributes, that's the one that is raised to the third degree. So again, something special about, uh, something special about, the, about the Psalms, about the poetry therein. So anyway, just to, as we conclude, it's important to think about you know, the other types of figurative language in the Psalms as well. Um, simile. You know, what is a simile? A simile is when you say that something is like or as something else. What's a metaphor? A metaphor is keeping your cows and your horses happy. What's a meadow for? Sorry. Um, sorry. That's a South Carolina joke. That's a big, that goes over huge in South Carolina. Um, a metaphor is, again, a comparison, a figurative comparison. What is personification? It's when you give something inanimate or non-human, human attributes. You know, these are all devices used by uh, the psalmists to create pictures, to create expressions, to, to get past just our rational mathematical minds into that heart of the matter. When we read the Psalms, we primarily read them by themselves. You know, each one goes, you know, is an individual entity into its, unto itself. But sometimes they do come in groups, and that heightens our understanding of them. For example, everybody knows Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Did you know that Psalm 22 is supposed to go, Psalm 23 is supposed to go with Psalm 22? What is Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dan McCall, one of my great longtime mentors and someone with whom I worked in, in South Carolina, he used to say that all the life, every day of our lives is lived somewhere on the continuum between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. Every day of our lives is lived somewhere between, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, those are two that just go together. So we read them individually, we read them together. But as we read them, we remember that these are personal. And think about them when you read the Psalms, think about them as a, as, like you would your hymns. You know, what's the background story? What is this telling me? What does this make me feel? What do I learn from it? Do I learn history? Do I learn prophecy? Do I learn things about God? Do I learn things about myself? You know, Calvin, um, Calvin needs a new publicist for the 21st century. I'm going to be Calvin's new publicist in the year, beginning of the year 2020. Because the bad thing is because the, the picture you always see of him is the one with the long, sharp beard and the, the hat. And he, he never looks happy. But, he, you know, that's... Again, that's just the way he was painted. He, he was not always like that. Yes, he had, some, he had a stern nature to him, but he was also a, a leader of people in a dangerous time. He had to. But he also was a man who could be greatly moved by the words of Scripture. And his favorite book was the Psalms. Listen to what he wrote in, in his commentary to the Psalms. He says, The Psalms may appropriately be called an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. The other parts of Scripture contain the commandments which God enjoined His servants to announce to us. But here, in the Psalms, are exhibited to us as speaking to God, laying open their inmost thoughts and affections, calling or rather drawing each of us into an examination of himself in particular. So the Psalms do two things in Calvin's estimation. They tell us about God. And they also show us ourselves as in a mirror. 
And if you go back to Calvin's greatest writing, his greatest work of literature, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he began with this line, that all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, comes from two things, knowledge of God and of ourselves. And the Psalms gives us those two things. It tells us about who God is, what He desires, what He expects, you know, what He has done. But it also shows us who we are. Because the Psalms are beautiful, but they can be raw. The Psalms are, are elevated, and yet they can, be on the, they can be right there with us. They are transcendent and yet imminent at the same time. How can they be all those things at once? Because the Psalms are expressions of the faith of David, which was the greatest gift that God ever gave him. Ever gave him. In spite of his flaws, God gave, God favored David with great faithfulness. No, David's great reward was not his kingship, it was not his authority, it was not his power. It was this relationship that he had that produced poetry. This relationship with the king of kings, but also the friend of friends and the lover of the soul. And so as we go through our study of the Psalms of David, we are going to learn a lot more about his life. I don't know that I can add too many facts from what we what we learned last semester, but we're going to learn a lot more about those facts and who David was in those situations. And so I'm glad that we're going to study this together, and this is going to be a different type of study. Um, let your imagination wander. Let your, let your heart be moved. Open your eyes and let God touch you in ways that maybe studying Scripture. Let's pray. Thank you, O God, for giving us this great gift of your word. And thank you for allowing us to study it together. Lord, each one of us brings our own personal uh, history, our own personal situation to the reading of the Psalms. And through these words of David, you are giving us words to express the deepest longings of our hearts. Lord, we come to you as students of your word because, like David, we need you. And we need you desperately. So we ask you to bless this study in your son's precious name. Amen.